What's going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Joey Munoz. Dr. Joey has a PhD in nutritional sciences. He is a coach. He spent time as a personal trainer, and he makes some of the best evidence-based fitness and nutrition content. He's been featured on podcasts like The Genius Life with Max Lugavere, works very closely with titans like Lane Norton, and has some incredible lifts in his own regard. For being a really tall guy, Joey is extremely strong, has great muscularity, is very smart, and brings a lot to the table that you can learn from. Today, we talk all about hypertrophy, nutrition, how to build muscle, the big rocks in training, how to make sure you're getting the most out of your supplementation and lifestyle. If you're interested in muscle growth and the benefits that come from having muscle with regards to your health and longevity, then you're going to love this episode with Dr. Joey Munoz. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you in part thanks to some of our amazing partners like LMNT. LMNT makes the best electrolyte product on the market. In fact, I've actually started drinking my LMNT each and every morning before I have coffee so as to optimize my circadian biology, make sure that I'm hydrated, and make sure that I'm getting ahead on my water intake throughout the day and not reliant on stimulants, but instead being somebody who's reliant on hydration and the proper balance of minerals and electrolytes. If you want to feel your best all day, mentally and physically, it's imperative that you stay hydrated. LMNT provides a balanced ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium to support brain and body hydration. This combination of electrolytes improves health, performance, body and brain performance, mind you, helps to reduce cramps and soreness and get you more hydrated. There's no sugar, Elementia is sweetened with stevia. It's perfect for exercise and perfect for the sauna because the flavors are natural, tasty, delicious, and not overpowering. And if you're like me, you'll use them multiple times a day across your training sessions to get hydrated early to replenish after sauna use. And again, it's not just me. Elementia is the official sports drink of Team USA weightlifting, and it's used by athletes in the NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, as well as athletes like you and I looking to take your fitness to the next level. My favorite flavors are definitely the raspberry and citrus. When I put a box together, I try to load up on raspberry and citrus. And when you put your box together, you can get a free sample pack containing all of Element's amazing flavors like mango chili, citrus, raspberry, orange, and more. To get access to this free gift with purchase, scroll down to the show notes and check out using the special link for Dynamic Dialogue listeners. Dr. Joey, how are you doing, my man? What's up, man? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk. Um, you know, we're kind of in the age of short form, evidence based fitness content. And I've been looking at yours for over a year now. And I think you have some of the cleanest, most succinct nutrition and fitness content on the internet. And, and even as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, that's kind of what I'm drawn to. People who I can learn from quickly, who are effective communicators. And I've really thought you've done an amazing job with the science, nutrition, and fitness communication. So I'm so stoked we're getting a chance to chat. Dude, thank you so much for the kind words. Honestly, you'll, you'll have to thank my video editor. <laughs> <laughs> behind every good uh, content creator is a very good yeah. video editor. Yeah. No, but jokes aside, man, um, 
you know, that's the one thing I really strive to do with my videos is make them simple and easy to understand and applicable. I think when I, when I started doing content and we were just talking about this was a little over two years ago. And I thought like the best kind of content was the type of content that would make me seem smart. Mm-hmm. And so it overcomplicates stuff and provide additional details like that people don't really care about. So true. Um, and just like, as more time has passed, I've tried making my stuff simpler and simpler. And uh, I think it resonates really well with people. So I, I appreciate the kind words for sure. It does. I, I think you do a, a good job with it. And nutrition and muscle growth are inexorable. They go together. But there are two things that I think have a tendency to get over-intellectualized because, hey, who doesn't want to sound smart? I know yeah. I've I've did the same thing. I laughed so much at some of the content I made where I was <laughs> so blatantly just trying to get like intelligence clout, like yeah. give me. And, and it creates a lot of noise and it creates a lot of confusion. And I yeah. think when you look at the primary issues that we face from a public health standpoint, whether it be obesity, diabetes, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, uh, clearly people are dealing with psychological issues like anxiety and depression, all of which can be positively augmented by exercising and eating a little better. I, I yeah. hate to, I hate to see us getting lost in the weeds. So to, to kind of play off of how good you are at communicating things simply, when you look at the general population and you look at the way most people live their lives, what what are the non-aesthetic reasons to want to build muscle? Because I think for a lot of us, just, we want to look better, but there are non-aesthetic reasons to want to put on muscle mass. Yeah. So actually on my podcast, I recently recorded an episode on all the health benefits of resistance training and building muscle in particular, right? Because we tend to think like, oh, it's just to look better. And I'd, I'd say probably everybody starts there with that purpose. Sure. That's fine. Like obviously looking good makes you feel better and whatever, but there's, uh, dozens of different reasons why you should, uh, lift weights. Right. And let's talk about from like a health-based perspective. And I think we can think about health from, uh, a variety of different like viewpoints. Right. If we think of health from like a disease prevention or disease risk perspective, uh, so main diseases being cardiovascular disease, diabetes, even, even, uh, cognitive decline as we age, right? Alzheimer's, uh, those kinds of diseases. There's really good data showing that resistance training really reduces the risk of developing those diseases. Yeah. Yeah. So we tend to think of like, I mean, there's obviously a genetic component to these diseases. Sure. Weight, weight is another big component that influences your risk of disease, but resistance training, building muscle independent of, of weight can help reduce the risk of developing these diseases. Right. So glycemic regulation, Lowering blood lipids, improving your cholesterol, improving your blood sugar, which is glycemic regulation, right? Improving your insulin sensitivity. Um, All of these things can be accomplished simply by lifting some weights. And it doesn't mean you have to be a bodybuilder. It simply means do some simple resistance training. Two to three times a week is sufficient if all you care about is the health benefits, right? So from a disease prevention standpoint, people ask me what's better, cardio or lifting? Like... I don't like to compare the two. They both have unique benefits, but lifting itself will help reduce the risk of these diseases. So will cardiovascular exercise, right? Yeah. Now, aside from a disease prevention standpoint, we can talk about health just like, how do you feel? Right? Yeah, because totally. at the end of the day, that's what most people care about. Like, how do you feel, right? How do you move? What's your day-to-day like? And if you're somebody who has um, physical limitations because you have certain joint pain or um, perhaps you aren't that strong and doing basic things like 
carrying your groceries is difficult, right? All of those things can be improved with lifting some weight. So quality of life significantly improves with lifting weights, right? Yeah. Uh, especially as you get older, imagine being able to run around and play with your kids. Imagine being able to run around and play with your grandkids, right? There's no reason why your like teenage kids should be in better shape than you. Like they're not even mature adults yet, right? Totally. And lifting weights can contribute to all those things. And then aside from the way you feel physically, there's the way you feel mentally, right? Mm-hmm. Being happy, stress-free. I think people like, I don't know, people who don't have experience with lifting think of this and they're like, this guy's trying to sell lifting as a magic pill. Um, it's the closest thing we've got. I'll tell you that. It, it really is. The, it really is the closest thing, right? But from a mental health standpoint, in terms of like having mental clarity, being happy, perhaps reducing stress. Uh, perhaps reducing your risk of depression, right? Like you were mentioning a little bit earlier, all of those things can be significantly improved with lifting. And again, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. It's just literally lifting some stuff, (laughs) lifting some stuff, putting it down. Totally. Uh, Yeah. We can talk about like the specifics of how you would train for muscle gain in particular, or like, I'm sure we, I'm sure we will. Yeah. Yeah. or, Or what good technique is and all that stuff. But when it comes to like the health benefits, like all of those things don't even matter. Right. Yeah, it's just totally like, do some exercise, lift some weights. It's um, fascinating so I, when you make, when you simplify it like that, like, yeah. cause, and as a personal trainer, I see this a lot. People come in and they tell me what you just said. Like, I want to be able to keep up with my kids. I just want to feel better. I want to be able to do things I used to do. It's like, you, you don't have to train like a bodybuilder to do that. You can literally pick like three or four compound lifts and do those three or four times a week. And you are probably going to be absolutely crushing it in the health, mental, uh, and perceived feeling of wellness categories. Like You will just uh, instantly hit a home run. It's pretty hard to screw it up. Now, if you want to optimize, which we'll talk about, there are a ton of strategies. But you know, 200,000 years as a species, and we just started sitting on our ass all day for like the last (laughs) 40 of it. I, I think what people miss is it's not so much, I mean, obviously how you lift is important, but you need to challenge the organism that is your kind of meat vessel. The body that carries you around needs to be challenged. And if it's not, you see a lot of dysregulation in a lot of different areas. Yeah. If I can share a quick story talking about like how simple it can really be, um, because I feel like oftentimes people are like, well, my knees hurt. I don't even know what exercises to do. Right. Mm-hmm. All the time. And it can literally be as simple as mimicking the movements that cause discomfort. Mm-hmm. Right. And here's what I mean by that. I worked as a personal trainer, uh, back in like 2016, 2017 for about two, three years. And I had a lot of older clients who had joint pain issues. And one, one story in particular that I love sharing, man, was this older lady. She was in her seventies. She started working with me and she had really bad um, arthritis in her knees, like mm-hmm. pretty much bone on bone, could barely sit down without like really bad pain. And when she would sit, she would just like plop down, you know, yeah. you don't control yourself on the way down. And so I'll tell you in a year, she was doing full goblet squats with 40 pounds, full range of motion, no pain. How did we get there? All we did was sit and stand mm-hmm. and progress it over time, right? So generally what I recommend people is like, Whatever movement hurts, limit the range of motion and do it in a range of motion that feels comfortable slash slightly uncomfortable Yeah, and do that regularly three or four times a week. And that discomfort zone will start to improve over time. You'll be able to get better range of motion, right? So with this lady, when we first started, 
she could barely bend her knees like 10 degrees without pain. So we just started by bending 10 degrees and then it was 15 and then it was 20 slowly, but surely over a couple months, she could sit to 90 degrees pain-free with full control, right? So that's one of the things when you do these exercises, you want to make sure you're controlling yourself. You're not just Absolutely. like throwing yourself around, right? Because you're trying to provide a small stressor and then your body is going to adapt to that stressor and become stronger. So if you feel too much at it at once, then that can be potentially detrimental. Um, and then when she was doing the, the body weight squats to 90 degrees, we added five pounds, 10 pounds, literally in a year, she was doing four range of motion, 40 pound goblet squats. And I we did that. nothing for her knees except sit and stand. So if like your shoulder hurts, just move your shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, like, it's, it's really that simple. It, it sure can be. And, and you yeah. hit on something that's huge. The number one reason outside of people saying that they don't have the time yeah. uh, for not engaging in resistance training specifically, but I think physical activity writ large is that there's some pain associated with movement and yeah. people are concerned that resistance training, because it is seen as being super macho, it's for bros, it's for bodybuilders, it's for athletes. It, it seems like, okay, well, that's, that certainly can't be the place to start. Like if, yeah. if I have knee pain or joint pain or one of these esoteric pain conditions like fibromyalgia or whatever, like I, that has got to be the most advanced place to start. And I think what personal trainers or people who have done personal training in their career realize is like 90% of the people you work with come to you with next to no fitness and you're doing exercises that look a lot more like physical therapy until they start yeah. to look like weightlifting. Yeah. And really, if you are in pain, to your point, the best thing you can probably do is to move that joint, move that tissue through the most pain-free range of motion you possibly can. And yeah. then as discomfort starts to build, you'll expand what you can tolerate and you slowly yeah. load it. And that shit works for almost everything. Because <laughs> when you're a personal trainer, sometimes you're like, I don't know what to do, but let's try the thing that's the least likely to make you not come yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, and it yeah. works. It works. And I think that hearing that from somebody like you is like, okay, that's encouraging. I'm I don't have to sweat it so much like doctor's orders, right? These are things that, you know, we see all the time really working for people. And I, I don't know, I think there's just a big misconception around the safety of resistance training. I think it's about as safe as you can get if you do it right. It, yeah. It's probably the safest type of exercise, really. It's not high impact, right? If you're controlling the weight, it's pretty damn safe. Uh, like injury risk per like thousand hours of training is way lower than any other sport. Which is um, so cool. Particularly if you're training for hypertrophy specifically. And if you're using machines, like even safer, right? Yep. I know we talk a lot about the benefits of free weights and stuff, but like machines are fantastic. I feel like they're very underrated too. And if performed correctly, they can be extremely helpful. Yes. Right? And then the one thing I really wanted to touch on is like, you said something that's really important that I feel like everybody can resonate with. That's like, people are afraid to do stuff because they have pain mm -hmm. and pain does not mean you shouldn't do something for a particular body part or Great a particular point. joint, right? Great point. It's like, and I, I've tried to explain this before and, and by no means am I a pain scientist and sure. there's a lot of like really cool research in this area, but just because you're experiencing pain does not mean you actually have an injury mm -hmm. and the opposite is true too. You can yeah. have an injury and not be exposed. Uh, experiencing pain, right? You see UFC fighters like uh, break, not their femur, they're like tibia, like snap sure, and half, right? Sure. They probably had stress fractures pr prior to that. 
which is an injury. And I can promise you they weren't really feeling any pain there, right? So you can have injuries without feeling pain and you can have pain without fe- without having an injury. You can have both, but they're not correlated like yeah. 100% of the time, right? Totally. And most times, if you're feeling like some elbow pain or a little bit of shoulder pain or some knee discomfort, that's usually not an injury, yeah. right? I honestly can't sit here and tell you why we experience these kinds of pains. I know we do, but... It's definitely not an indicator that you shouldn't move and actually moving and stressing that joint and being okay with feeling a little bit of pain will put you in a much better uh, place than, than not doing anything at all. Yeah. It's weird. Like people don't move because they're in pain and then they stay in pain because they don't move. And when I, I'm not a pain scientist either. I'm not a scientist at all. <laughs> but like when I started learning, because the clinic that I run, it's just half strength and conditioning, half physical therapy. So I have physical therapists in there and I, I hear what they say to their patients and I'm always keying in on it. And the amount of times I hear them communicating, look, just because you're in pain doesn't mean that there's any tissue damage. And people come in with image results. Like I, I had a client come in, she had an MRI done and she had hardly any pain. And she gets the MRI back and she has like two bulging discs. And all of a sudden there's pain in that part of her body. Mm. And I say, when are, when are you getting the imaging interpreted? Oh, not till May 16th, which just so happens to be today. But I was like, man, that this was like a month ago. I was like, that's like a whole month of yeah. not knowing. So I said, when you come in, bring it with you. We'll let the PT read it to you. And the PT is like, oh, you know, all this stuff is actually pretty normal age-related change in the body. And all of a sudden, that pain went away. So it's yeah. there is a psychological and a social component to how we experience pain. And like, if you look at imaging, there are baseball pitchers who have just absolutely destroyed their shoulders, and they will pitch 200 innings a year until yeah. they and and you don't want to show them the imaging. Don't let them know because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the body is so adaptive and resilient that when you hear just how safe weightlifting can be, uh, I think it's a great pathway out of pain because you're quite literally cultivating some degree of resilience when you're pushing into a hard set. Yeah. Pain is extremely perceptual, man. Like uh, it's, it's, it's weird. It really really is. And and people who lift a lot know how to push into it. And so I think that there's some degree of expansion of tolerance that can come from doing things like this. So let's, let's say you've got somebody and we've established like, this is a baseline for what you probably want to do to build muscle, lift a couple times a week, you know, definitely focus on compounds, push yourself a little bit. What about for those of us who are pretty determined that they'd like to change their physique? They want to be bigger. They want to be uh, leaner. Like what are the kind of central no BS need to get done things? Cause there is so much fluff. Yeah. So should we talk about uh, training principles first? I think so. We'll talk about training for optimal muscle growth or to, to okay. maximize what you're working with. And then I'd love to hear how you can support that with nutrition and lifestyle. Cause yeah. I think, I think people are usually good at like one of the three, but yeah. two of them they need, they need work with. Yeah, certainly, man. So training with a focus on hypertrophy, which is building muscle is what is my bread and butter. Like it's what I love doing. Um, and honestly, I'll give a shout out here to Dr. Mike Isratel because his content has helped me tremendously. He's the goat when it comes to this stuff, man. He's so fantastic. Love it. Um, his YouTube page is Renaissance Periodization for anybody who wants to check My, that out. Mike's been on the pod. He is he is a pod regular. Pod. He's a man. 
Yeah. Oh, dude, he's yeah, he's incredible. Um, but okay, if we if we talk about training for hypertrophy, uh, you can get lost in the weeds here, and there's a lot of little nuance in in all of these areas that I'll talk about. But I'll talk about some of the main variables that you should focus on if you want to train with an emphasis on maximizing muscle growth. Perfect. Yeah, I guess some of the first questions people ask is like, what training split should I follow? How many days per week should I train? And in general, the training split that you follow doesn't matter at all. Right? Yeah. It literally does not matter at all. Which on its face is like paradigm shattering yeah. for probably yeah, 85% then, of people who are listening. Cause that's where they start. I want that, the perfect routine. That's where routine. people spend the majority of their time. Like what program should I follow? Can't, oh, this they one, can't this get one. past that part. <laughs> yeah. And that's like the least important part, right? As long as you're not doing a traditional bodybuilding split yeah. where you train each muscle once per week, as long as you're not doing that, it, you're probably good. <laughs> it's, it is uh, ironic how like the, the protocols that work the best for dudes who are on like enhancements yeah. that might be pharmacological just are, I don't want to say clearly suboptimal, but they're not, they're definitely not optimal for yeah. nat- naturals. Yeah. Yeah. They're suboptimal. And I'd say it's even suboptimal for that type of, of person as well. It's oh, just for great some point. reason that's the way people have been training. Because if you look at Mike, he's enhanced and he trains with actual scientific principles and he's freaking jacked. Yes. But if we talk about splits, the split itself doesn't matter. What matters is how frequently you train a muscle. Gotcha. Right. And different splits allow you to train muscles with different frequency. And in, in reality, you really want to train each muscle at least twice per week. Gotcha. Uh, for hypertrophy, training more than twice per week may not be necessary for the majority of people. For more advanced lifters, if you want to really specialize and bring up one particular muscle, maybe training it more frequently might be beneficial. But as long as you're training muscles at least twice per week, you're good. And how now, far apart should those sessions yeah. be? Ideally, you want to space them out evenly throughout the week, right? Cool. Three, four days in between the same muscle group. Now, I say there's nuance here because if you're training a muscle three or four times per week, it, it's different. Right? Yeah. What really matters is that the total amount of work that you're doing for a muscle is evenly spaced out through the week as best as possible. We'll talk about sets in a second, but let's say you're doing 15 sets for your quads and you're going to do that in two sessions. Well, one should be about seven sets. The other should be about eight sets and maybe separate those three or four days in between, right? Perfect. And now in terms of how many days you want to train, you can make gains with three days per week. In theory, the more days you train, the better because you can handle more volume, right? Mm -hmm. Like I train five days per week personally. If I did that total amount of work in three days, I just wouldn't be able to. It's just too much. Same. So you can make really good gains training three days per week. Four is arguably better. Five is arguably a little bit better. The more advanced you become, the more work you should be doing to continue to progress and perhaps having more days is beneficial, right? But main things I want you to take away from this so far is train each muscle at least two times per week. Perfect. Now, if we go one step beyond this, and by the way, dude, I am literally about to publish an episode on this particular topic, like training principles for muscle hypertrophy. We'll Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. We'll link it in the show notes. I'll go into these topics in a lot more detail, but on the volume side of things, right? So we've got how many days you're going to train. Now it's like, how much should you be doing in terms of number of sets? The research really shows if you're training with like 10 sets per muscle group per week, it's a pretty good starting place to get really good uh, gains. Now, again, same thing here. In theory, more is better. If you can do more, given that you're training hard. Right? Yeah, that's so can, important, man. Yeah, that is, dude, that's yeah. really something that the more I train people yeah, and the more I communicate the importance of that, the more it just reigns true. It, 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 that's a huge one. Yeah. People don't train hard enough, right? And so they think they need to do more and more. It's like you're not even 
close to like a, a three or four RIR, which is reps in reserve, right? You're doing a set and you still have like seven or eight reps left in the tank. It's like, you really need to push your body near its limits. That in itself is a skill that you learn probably a year or two after training. Like it takes time to, to really absolutely learn how to true. And you almost start to realize like the more experienced you are with lifting, the less work you can do. Cause like you really learn how to push your body, right? So it's like, you man, I just can't it, do man. that much work. You nailed it. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable how like even seven, eight, I'm almost nine years in now. I'll catch myself and I'll do a set to pretty much failure. Yeah. And I'll be on the second set of an exercise. And I'll be like, I'm, I'm just done. That that I'm done with Dude. that exercise. Like that's it. <laughs> I do, I do max three sets on an exercise. That's a lot. Really, I usually do about two sets on an exercise and I really push them. And for a session, if I'm training a muscle twice per week, I'll do six or seven sets for a muscle and I'm fried. Yes. And if I train a muscle three times per week, I might do four or five sets for the session. And even then I'm fried, dude. Like, and you get, you get better. Dr. Joey's right. You get a lot better at figuring this out as you, when you first start, you probably want to be five, six reps from failure so that you can learn the pattern, learn how to perform the exercise properly, like drill your reps. And it's like, kind of like a golf swing. You just need to like practice the swing you don't even get to swing hard yet because if you do you'll fuck it up but when you're actually making contact and hitting the ball and then you start swinging hard it's like oh wow i really don't need to swing that much to get the ball where i need it to go when you suck you got to hit it a million times (laughs) to get it on the green but that's okay because you're learning yeah and it's a you shouldn't rush it right it just takes time to learn i like to to use an analogy here. It's like people think of like lifting as just like strength related mm-hmm. and it's just as much skill, right? Like, yeah, that's a great point. A basketball player shoots a hundred, 200, 300 free throws a day. Like lifting itself is a skill mm-hmm. and like you wouldn't expect to play basketball the first time in your life and like know how to cross the ball over or do any flashy moves. You just don't, you don't have the muscle memory, right? It's like, you can't expect to like do a squat perfectly the first time and not just even do it perfectly. It's like when you start loading it, your body's like shaking. It's like, you don't know what you're doing. So you don't even have the capacity to push your limits. Like you you really don't. Not, not safely anyway. Yeah. Not safely anyway. Right. Like, yeah, you just can't because you can't coordinate your muscle contraction, like the way it has to work. So it just takes years to really develop that. Um, But you know, if you like, we were talking about doing at least 10 sets per muscle per week, you're in a good place. If you train hard place. Yeah. Like that's a lot of work. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But if you're training hard and you're recovering properly and recovering just means like on the most basic definition of the term recovery is like, are you making progress? Yeah. Are are you able to increase what you do on a weekly basis versus like the opposite where you're you're seeing backsliding? Do you not feel like you're dragging your ass from day to day? Right. Because that's another really good indicator too. Like sometimes people are prioritizing their nutrition, their training, they just feel like exhausted and they're probably just doing a little bit too much. Especially if you have a really demanding job and like a bunch of like personal responsibilities with family and maybe you have a small child and you don't sleep well, which is a situation I'm in currently, (laughs) like (laughs) it all adds up. Right. Yeah. but so far we've talked about, you know, training frequency, uh, total volume, intensity, right. And total volume. Those are three of the main variables. And the yeah. last thing I would really touch on to keep this like pretty simple in terms of recommendations is exercise selection, right? It's like you mentioned, one. maybe start with mainly compound movements and start with stable exercises. People want to do random shit. Like, yeah single leg, I don't know, RDO while like your hands above your head and you're like scratching your back. Like, don't overcomplicate stuff. Use the most basic exercises. 
uh, because the basic exercises work. Yeah. Use exercises that when you finish the set, it feels like your muscle is tired and not your overall body is tired. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a really good indicator, right? So it's true. Like when you do a heavy set of leg press, like your quads are screaming. If you do a set of squats on a BOSU ball, like it might be really hard, like in terms of your balance, you might be breathing heavy. It might be exhausting, but it's not, it's not as locally fatiguing in the muscle as yeah. a very stable exercise, yeah. right? Which is so important for muscle growth, yes. right? Like, a, yes. like you'll get all the health benefits we talked from, about yeah. from doing your stupid BOSU ball, single leg overhead RDL because you're contracting yeah. your tissue, but good yeah. luck getting it to grow. Yeah. And Maybe if you're trying to like better your balance, that might be a little bit better. I mean, if you're trying to like improve reaction time or some other aspect of your fitness, like what you guys need to understand is that like there is no best exercise for everything, right? Mm. The type of the type of exercise that you do and the way you train should be specific to the outcome that you want. So everything we're talking about here is muscle muscle growth in particular, right? Like yeah. if you were telling me how do I optimize my strength, well, a lot of this stuff would be similar but different. Right? Totally. The outcome, the outcome determines how you train. That's so, so true. Yeah. Exercise selection, compound movements, start with compound movements, make sure you choose stable movements. And it's interesting because from a hypertrophy perspective, if we, if we talk about purely hypertrophy, you can argue that a lot of machines are better than I would. Weights. I would agree. The paradigm yeah. shattering uh, recommendation, no doubt, but I've yeah. come to believe this myself, especially if you want to have a long training career because output is important. And yeah. when you can control for a variable like stability, you can ratchet your output up and yes. keep it safe. Yes. And fatigue is lower too. Mm -hmm. Like overall fatigue and you can handle more volume. But it's like if you're trying to optimize like your strength or maybe like how much an exercise translates to like real life. Yes. Sure. Free weight movements are better. Yes. Right. But purely from a muscle growth perspective, I would argue that a leg press is probably one of the best things you can do for your legs. A hack squat, something like that. Because one of the issues with free weights is that as you're fatiguing the balance aspect is a lot harder. You start shaking, form breaks down. So you have a ton of other things to focus on versus mm -hmm. just contracting the muscle. Whereas yeah. on a leg press, you can really push it to failure pretty safely. Yeah. And you're just going to feel a ton of local fatigue in the quads and the glutes. I actually feel a lot more stimulus from like leg press or hack squat on my quads than I do a barbell back squat. And I do yeah. them all, right? I do a back squat, but I recognize that like the feeling locally in the muscle is not the same, even if I'm doing the same rep range at the same intensity. Totally. Right. So start with compound movements. Um, make sure you have the main compound movements for all the major muscle groups, a vertical and horizontal push and pull for the upper body, uh, uh, some sort of squatting movement and some sort of hip hinge movement for the lower body that pretty much covers everything. Yes. And then do some isolation movements for exercises or for muscles that you want to bring up more, right? Typically calves, hamstrings, hamstrings don't get that much direct work from something like just an RDL, right? Sure. And then perhaps some arm work, some lateral delts and stuff like that. And then if you want to get some more chest work, whatever isolations should complement the compound movements to get more volume in the muscles that you want to focus on a little bit more. It's right? perfectly succinct. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's pretty much the main overview, right? And I guess the last main question that people have is like rep ranges. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really matter. Like as long as you're pushing the intensity, the rep range doesn't matter. You could literally train with six reps. You could yeah. train with 20, 25 reps. If the intensity is there, the hypertrophic stimulus is going to be pretty similar across rep ranges. Now, I think there's some practical things to, to take into account. Like 
you probably don't want to be doing a set of 20 on barbell squats. It's just not necessary. Yeah. Right. So certain exercises lend to lend themselves to different rep ranges because a big compound movement, if you do a ton of reps, is going to be more cardiovascular fatiguing than anything. Sure. Right? So big heavy movements generally lend themselves to lower rep ranges, whereas isolation movements, you also don't want to be doing a set of five on lateral raises you're gonna, yeah you're gonna snap your shoulder you're gonna snap your elbow right like it's just not necessary it might be effective but you probably uh would get a much better training stimulus from going to 12 to 15 20 reps on those types of exercises totally that's i love that pretty much it man i think that's that summarizes like 90 percent of it probably it really does i think the the one thing i i would add to this because you covered everything is you know everybody has a different degree of mobility mm-hmm. and as you progress if you have the ability to optimize for technique and range of motion over like, I just want to jump yes. up and wait in the long run, it will probably be better for your training career, your muscle growth, as well as your just the overall resilience and capacity of your body to train through the fullest range of motion you can. So if you start and you're like, man, these leg presses are great. I'm, I'm getting my quads to my freaking chest and yeah. I'm, I, I, I'm going to, throw another plate on there. Well, when you throw another plate on there, you can't go down as far. Throw a quarter plate on there, throw a 10. I I think a lot of people forget that the range of motion is something that's very important. And when it's possible to train through a full range of motion, uh, instead of jumping up to a weight that makes you limit the range of motion, it'll give you a longer runway to train. It'll probably keep all of your tissues and joints that much more resilient. And it's great for hypertrophy to train tissues through a full range of motion. Yeah. 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 So range of motion is a great variable to bring up. And like, I'm always a huge proponent of maximizing range of motion before anything else. And you have great technique too, for a guy who I I think is pretty tall. Like you got to be like six, five, bro. Yeah. So that's fucking insane. So like I've watched Dr. Joey Barry three plates plus on squats through a full range of motion. And I would bet my ass if he was like cool with quarter repping or half repping with the training <laughs> career he's had, he could be at four plates, five plates. But if you're doing reps with three yeah. plates at over six feet tall, how much you don't need that much more weight. Like the amount you are, the, um, the range that you are training that tissue through is huge. Yeah, dude, it's really tough, man. But like, it's funny because and since you brought up numbers, when I was probably like 19, 20 years old, I used to do the quarter squats and I was way weaker than I am now. I was doing 365 for yeah. like a five by five and it was a quarter squat. Totally. And I was like, man, I'm hella strong. And then one day I learned about like range of motion, like maximizing range of motion. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do squats with a full range of motion. I knew I would have to drop weight, but I was like, maybe 365, I'll drop to like 325 or something like that. Dude, I went down to one plate, 135, and I can barely do like five or six reps. It was so hard. And so I just had to like build back up. And I'm even like 10 years, well, close to 10 years later, I'm not where I was with the quarter squats. It's like your legs got bigger. (laughs) Substantially. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I wanted to talk about. Like with all my clients, I force them to maximize range of motion because it's something that everybody can learn, right? Mm -hmm. It makes you more mobile. But then from a hypertrophy perspective, actually stretching your muscle induces stretching your muscle under load 
induces hypertrophy independent of other variables, but right? They've so it's shown like, this. They have dudes who sit yes. under their freaking desk with their calves stretched for eight hours at a time. Those men suffered so that you can make gains <laughs> with less weight when you train through a full range yeah, of motion. Yeah, yeah. And it's not even about like purposefully using less weight. It's about like doing the exercise correctly, right? Because I'd argue that it's like, it's not that you are getting more out of less weight. It's that you're actually doing the exercise correctly. It's a great People way to People just put it. use too much weight and they're not doing the exercise correctly, right? So it's like, if you're going to squat to grow your quads, your hamstring should be touching your caps or you should be aiming for that, right? Because yeah. the more you bend your knee, the more stretch you get in the quad, the better hypertrophic stimulus you're going to get from that particular exercise. Pull-ups, go to a dead hang, fully stretch your back. Bench press, touch your chest, right? Like these are all low hanging fruits that it's not even like most people don't even have mobility issues. Most people just use too much weight. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable how many people like will come in and be like, Oh, I have terrible mobility. And I'm like, really? Let's see it. I'm like, it looks great. It looks great. You can do it perfectly. Or like one thing that a lot of coaches do is it's like, oh my gosh, my client's knees are just caving in on squats. It's like, well, did you tell them that's not supposed to happen? And you tell them and they can correct it. Like, yeah, uh, we are very capable of organizing our our body and and performing exercises well. We just need to practice it and rehearse it and do yeah. literally do the reps. And so if you're in that initial phase, to Dr. Joey's point, pick th- somewhere between three to five days, try to focus on a, a push, a pull, a squat, a hinge. Those are your those are your bedrock patterns. And if you're new, just fucking do those anyway, because in two to three years, everything you do is going to be an expansion of that. It's like, oh, I want to yeah. do Bulgarian split squats. Cool. Do squats first, because that's like yeah, a yeah, squat yeah. on one leg. And if, yeah. if you get good at that, <laughs> yeah. that will be easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like you said, like rep ranges are really confusing because it seems like there's so much different shit out there. But as long yeah. as the set's hard yeah, and yeah, you're yeah. not like and you use like even an ounce of intuition. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, you're yeah. you're gonna know, like, oh, I did a set of six lateral raises. That that sucked. Like 15, yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 feels better. And like 15 squats put me in the grave. So like six to eight's yeah. better. Do it through a full range of motion and try to do it kind of close to failure. And you're pretty much yeah. there. Dude, talking about the point that most people use too much weight, uh, to ask you a question, what rep in a set should be the hardest? The first one or the last one? The last one. Last one, right? Why do so many people struggle on their first rep of dumbbell chest press? Say, have selected a weight that is too heavy. Too heavy, right? So that first rep, it's like super deep and they can barely get it up. And then they have somebody help them get it up and they get it. They get another 15 reps after that. Mm-hmm. How? They only come way, come down half halfway, right? Like yeah. it's like, even on a dumbbell chest press, that first rep should be your easiest because every single rep should be equally as deep in theory. So right? true. Like you should so come true. down nice and slow, get the full stretch in the chest and every rep should be from the same position as your first repetition. Yep. So if you're listening to this, <laughs> you relate because I feel like that's the one exercise that people like. Oh, so true. Clicks, right? Instantly. It's like a dumbbell chest press, that first rep, you shouldn't need somebody to help you bring it up. And I've even had clients say things to me like, oh, like I need to go with a spotter to the gym because I can't get the first rep up. It's like, Yo, just drop the weight and go way deeper, like go way deeper. And you'll find that the exercise is so much more effective. You'll get so much of a better stimulus in the chest, a better stretch, a better pump. Those things on their own are not indicative of muscle growth, but they are a good indicator that that muscle is working. Yes. Right. So it's like, just it's ego, man. It's it's mainly young dudes, right? It's mainly young dudes. Let's be honest. Nobody <laughs> wants to grow muscle more than young dudes yeah. looking to get laid. It's it's not, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, breaking yeah. news. It's been that way for <laughs> human history. 
But I yeah. think what, if you do all of these things, you'll be in a fabulous position to build muscle, but you will not build much if you don't have the nutrition on point. And I think yeah. that there are a number of things that one ought to consider when it comes to nutrition for muscle growth. But the big ones that come to mind for me are, are you getting enough calories? Are yeah. you getting enough carbohydrates? And are you getting enough protein? Um, and so expand on that. Cause I, I, as I understand it, nutrition is really your big forte. Um, yeah. wh what do people need to do nutritionally to put their body in a position, you know, independent of their, their current weight, like some people want to build muscle and lose fat, but what are the things you need to do with nutrition to support muscle growth and recovering from this training? Sure. I guess let's talk about a prototypical person trying to focus on building muscle mainly. Okay. Because guys, when you start like anything you do will improve your body composition. Quite literally. Right? If you start focusing on nutrition a little bit, you start lifting weights a little bit, you're going to build muscle. You can lose fat and build muscle at the same time. Yes, you can. Right. Now let's talk about maybe a step further than that. Somebody who is perhaps not a complete beginner anymore. And like, they really want to optimize muscle growth specifically. Okay. So let's talk about nutrition here. Hierarchy of importance. Most important thing is total energy intake for sure. Is. Right? It's like, listen, if you want to optimize building muscle, you have to slowly gain weight. There's mm. no way around it. Mm, you there can, it is. That's the sound bite, folks. Yeah, you, you can maintain you can maintain your body weight, build some muscle, sure, but it's going to be way slower, and you're you're just like not really going to be content with your progress. If you want to optimize building muscle, really commit to gaining some weight. Right mm. now, the issue most people have is that they gain weight too quickly. They think like if I just eat as much as possible, dirty bulking, I'm going to get jacked. I think you've probably made that mistake. I've made that I, mistake. A uh, who, I've made that mistake. Yeah, dude, I blew up from, okay, so I graduated high school in 2012 and I was about 180 pounds at 6'5". So I was like super skinny. And then I blew up to 220 my freshman year of college and I was just like pounding food. Yeah. Pounding like 32 ounces of chocolate milk with like pizza. Like I was just eating, right? And I just got way too thick, way too quick. <laughs> it was uh, very, right? I like that. Um, so, so I think that's the main approach that people take. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the dirty bulking approach because at least you learn this with experience, right? But building muscle is an extremely, extremely slow process. Yeah. And you won't build more muscle just because you eat more. Yeah. Right? You might build marginally more muscle, but you will build, you will gain exponentially more fat, right? So totally. it's not, it's not ideal from a, from a sustainability standpoint. And so I think traditionally what people try to gain like a pound a week, yeah. that's ridiculous. That's, that's ridiculous. really rapid. <laughs> like that's yeah, if you're probably, brand new, you'd be the greatest yeah. muscle builder ever still. Yeah. It's 52 yeah, I, pounds of muscle in a year, which is like a lifetime's worth of muscle yeah. growth. <laughs> and what people don't realize is like at least half of that is fat, right? Um, and more than half of it is fat, like the more experienced you are. But I'd probably recommend gaining weight at no more than like a pound a month, yeah. which is substantially slower, right? I think that's a really good rate of weight gain. You're gaining maybe 10 to 15 pounds in a year. I've been slowly gaining weight over the past year and a half, and I've put on about 20 pounds now. Okay. People will pull that, put that on in three months, dude. Yeah. Like you yeah. just like yeah. can't, you cannot gain appreciable muscle mass in three months unless no. you are a complete beginner. And even then, three months is just not enough time, right? So, Make sure you're in a position where you feel comfortable gaining weight and commit to gaining weight for at least nine to 12 months, at yeah. least. 
if you want to see actual changes in your body composition and your strength, because yes, you're going to get stronger, but also understand that when you lean back out, you're going to lose a little bit of that strength. So you want to gain a, a good amount of strength so that when you lose some, you're still uh, above where you were previously. Gotcha. Right? And that takes time. And that can be accomplished by literally being at maybe like a 200, 300 calorie surplus. It's, it's minimal. Which right? basically just means like you're eating two to 300 calories more than whatever it is your body needs to operate. Yes. And I honestly don't even track my calories. Like what I just do is I weigh myself regularly and I can kind of intuitively eat a little bit more, eat a little bit less, right? It's mm-hmm. super simple. And like if one month I'm a little bit heavier than I'd like, maybe I just eat a little bit less for the next week or two and maybe my weight comes down. So I'm not like perpetually in um, a gaining phase, I guess. Every once in a while, I'm a little bit less, you know, but just to, to maintain my weight within uh, appropriate parameters. And that's a very simple way of doing it for yeah, me. Yeah, it is. Um, but you know, you want to gain weight slowly. Energy balance is really the most important thing when we're talking about optimized nutrition. Let's take it a step further. Now we talk about particular nutrients, right? Protein. Everybody knows protein is important. I think most people, there's nothing wrong with eating a ton of protein, but I think a lot of people overdo it too. Like the whole gram per pound is great. You can eat that much and you're fine, but you definitely don't need that much. No. Yeah. Like, especially if you're in a gaining phase, like actually when you're cutting, you need more protein than when you're gaining because keep you full. It helps keep you full, but you're actually using some of that protein for energy production versus just the biological processes that go into building muscle, right? So when you're eating more food surplus, you actually spare some of that protein. So you actually don't need as much protein. Interesting. And the research pretty much clearly shows that if you're eating about like 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 grams per pound of body weight, which is about 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, you're in a good place, right? So for a 200 pound person getting 160, 180 grams of protein, you're good. If you want to get 200 grams there's nothing wrong with that it's just it's a lot for some people it is it is it's definitely tough yeah and the more protein you eat like the less of other stuff you can eat too and like you mentioned a little while ago carbs are important like you definitely don't want to follow a low carb diet if you care about your performance and building muscle yeah now people listen to this stuff and they're like but my friend is keto and he got jacked guys i'm not saying that you can't make progress in other ways But if we're talking about optimizing progress, carbohydrates are incredibly important for performance. Yes, you can get stronger. You can build muscle if you follow a low-carb diet. It's just not optimal. You'll make better progress eating sufficient carbohydrates. What's going on, guys? Taking a break from this episode to tell you a little bit about my coaching company, Core Coaching Method. More specifically, our app-based training. We partnered with Train Heroic to bring app-based training to you using the best technology and best user interface possible. You can join either my Home Heroes team, or you can train from home with bands and dumbbells, or Elite Physique, which is a female bodybuilding-focused program where you can train at the gym with equipments designed specifically to help you develop strength as well as the glutes, hamstrings, quads, and back. I have more teams coming planned for a variety of different fitness levels. But what's cool about this is when you join these programs, you get programming that's updated every single week. The sets to do, the reps to do, exercise tutorials filmed by me with me and my team. So you'll get my exact coaching expertise as to how to perform the movement, whether you're training at home or you're training in the gym. And again, these teams are somewhat specific. So you'll find other members of those communities looking to pursue similar goals at similar fitness levels. You can chat, ask questions, upload form for form review, ask for substitutions. It's a really cool training community and you can try it completely free for seven days. Just click the link in the podcast description below. Can't wait to see you in the core coaching collective, my app-based training community. Back to the show. 
Yeah, there are very few athletes who compete in sports that are primarily glycolytic and require that require a substantial amount of muscle mass who follow a low carbohydrate diet. That is a that is a big disconnect between the health space and the kind of performance space. Yeah. Like a lot of people follow low carbohydrate diets because they can help people get lean because yeah. there's caloric reduction. And a lot of really fit people follow them for different yeah. reasons. And so they yeah. go, that that dude's jacked. I'm going to do that. But the most jacked people who also perform at a high level eat a lot of carbohydrates and they don't yeah. apologize about it. Yeah. And if we actually look at the research on this, like um, fatigue sets in earlier on low carb diets, sure. right? So you get tired quicker and you have a higher, a higher rate of perceived exertion. So stuff feels objectively more hard, right? Yeah. Harder. I shouldn't say more hard. Doctor saying more hard. What am I saying? <laughs> it should feel harder, right? Like it will feel harder if you have low carbohydrates compared to, to eating out of car carbohydrates. And what that means, like, is if you can typically lift a hundred pounds for 10 repetitions on an exercise, you might still be able to do that, but it's going to feel objectively a lot harder. And so when it feels objectively a lot harder, your overall workout intensity is a little bit lower, yeah. right? And it's the same, it's the same similar effect to like, if you get poor sleep or you're dehydrated, it's like, yeah, you could probably still train and you could probably get pretty similar numbers, but shit just feels harder. Right. Yeah. And if that accumulates over time, it influences your workout quality, which influences your progress. So you definitely yeah. want to eat adequate carbohydrates and it's guys, it's not that hard. You don't have to like target a specific amount of carbohydrates either. Just like, just eat carbs with your meals. Love that. Right? It's Dude, it's so simple. Like for a meal, if we're going to talk about what a, a plate should look like, put adequate protein on your plate, right? And it's like, however much protein you need, split it up into three or four doses and just make sure that's on your plate. Usually your protein source might cover your fat source as well. So like, you don't have to think about adding fat, right? Happens a lot. Make sure you get at least a handful or so of veggies on there. And then just like put some carbs on your plate for your caloric needs, right? And if you're not tracking your calories, just put some carbs on there till you feel full. And like, that's, that's, Pretty much it. The carbs aren't going to magically make you fat or anything like that. Here's an interesting um, uh, question here because I, I yeah. love the visual of like, let's put a plate together because I, I think that's where like 80% of people are at. And that's like just what people need to hear. Uh, you know, getting enough protein and getting yeah. enough carbohydrates are things that people tend to struggle with. What I have found is uh, for people who have come from a background of thinking like low carbohydrate is the way to go. They really mm -hmm. struggle to get enough carbs for almost everybody I work with. Initially, they struggle to get enough protein. What are like, obviously you have different, you know, pro like meat and grains, but like, what are you, some of your go-to sources of protein? They can be snacks, carbohydrates. They can be snacks that you think are practical for people who are like, I'm on the go. I got stuff to do. I want to, I want to support getting more of these things in, but you know, I don't know the first place to look and I'm not just going to like throw open my George Foreman grill and plug it into my car, you know, cigarette yeah. lighter and cook up a chicken breast. So from protein perspective, first, obviously with your meals, if you can, you know, if you eat meat, ideally you get some meat with your meals, but if you're traveling and you still want to get your protein in and like maybe we talk about some easy sources of protein like you can't beat whey protein right yep. protein super easy to travel with it's not like a drug or some weird supplement it's literally isolated from dairy yeah so if you drink milk if you eat cheese if you have yogurt all of those things have whey protein in it 
whey protein is literally isolated from dairy. Okay. Um, so whey protein powder is like number one. Anytime I travel, I bring it with me. It's super easy. Aside from that, if we talk about actual food choices, mm-hmm. um, I go heavy on dairy. Like people think dairy is inflammatory. It's bad for you. It's not. It's actually, if we're going to talk about inflammation, it actually has pretty potent anti-inflammatory properties. But aside from that, uh, Greek yogurt is fantastic, right? Like Greek yogurt, easy to travel with. You're getting a general rule of thumb that I like, Danny, is things that have one gram of protein per hundred calories or something. Sorry, one gram of protein per 10 calories. So about 10 grams of protein per Ooh, 100 calories. I really like that. I really protein, like right? that. That's about 40% protein. That's a really good source of protein. Yeah. And if you guys are thinking, where'd I get that 40%? A gram of protein is four calories, right? So four calories out of 10 calories, 40% protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that fall into that category, whey protein, we just mentioned, Greek yogurt would fall into that category. I'm a huge fan of like the low fat skin milk uh, mozzarella sticks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I right? love those. Those are about, I think those are like six or seven grams of protein per like 70 calories. So that fits perfectly. Um, and then really like if we're talking about traveling, there's nothing wrong with eating like canned stuff either, yeah. right? Yep. Again, there's, and guys, if if you, for some reason are listening to this and feel like some particular foods are bad or unhealthy for you, please go check out all of my content on why foods are not bad for you, right? There's nothing wrong with eating like canned tuna or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it just meets, it just meets your macronutrient requirements. It's easy to get in, right? So those, so, those are the main sources that I would use for protein when traveling. It's really hard with protein, right? Because I still stick to mainly getting meat when I can, right? Sure. If I'm going out to eat, let's say I'm going to Chipotle, I'll just get a double portion of meat. I think meat is pretty easily accessible, even if you're traveling anywhere. You might just have to modify your food choices, right? Yeah. If you're going to go somewhere, perhaps don't just get the entree the way it is on the menu because that's probably not going to be very protein rich. You can ask for some modifications, maybe getting a double portion of protein. Pay or something the like extra $8 for double yeah. meat. <laughs> or, or what you do is you get the entree and then you just have a scoop of protein powder on the side. The That's biggest hack in fitness yeah. is having a shake before you go out to eat because you're like, oh, I have 40 grams of protein added to my meal right there. Yeah. Can't mess exactly. up for under two bucks. Yeah. Dude, and on the carb source side of things, it's super easy. Like the main things I eat is white rice, right? And you can even like, if you're traveling and you want to prepare your meals, you can buy like little prepackaged things of white rice that you just toss in the microwave. Like, mm-hmm. like the, what is it? Uh, Uncle Ben's. Ben's. Yeah, Uncle Ben's. Yep. Yeah, Uncle Ben's, right? Or I think he got I think they got canceled because that was like somehow not kosher. So any amb- any ambiguous racially sensitive microwave rice is fine, guys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> microwave rice, have that. And then honestly, just fruit, man. I eat a lot of fruit. It's like so easy to just eat fruit. Like it you don't is. have to cook it, can travel with it. I probably, dude, you might think this is crazy. I probably have like three bananas or so a day. Yeah. I, my fruit intake is off the charts and it like my fruit intake went up the more idiots on the internet who started saying not to eat fruit. And like the more you guys learn, like this is one of the cool things like with nutrition, people get really focused. Like they're looking for the next super food, these nutrient dense foods that you never heard of. Uh, They're all already in your produce section. Like fruits, fruits are so nutrient dense. They have incredibly better, like one of my favorite fruits, super random, but like things like pineapples and papayas and mangoes. And people are out here like, oh, I'm looking for uh, this. It's supposed to be good for my gut health. I I was like, bro, nothing's better for your gut health than a papaya. Go eat some papaya. Take the first shit you've had in a week. And like, 
Come and talk <laughs> to me. Like, go to the grocery store and buy some fruit you've never had before. There's yeah, so dude. many different kinds. They have so much unique and incredible micronutrients. They have plant compounds that are super beneficial for your body. All the bullshit on the internet about them being dangerous for you is, is pure garbage. Yeah. But like, it, you know, and, and these fruits, like some of them, like I love apricots. Yeah, apricots, dude. I find out, have more glucose than like any other fruit. But they also have a good amount of fructose. So it's like, you know what a perfect pre-workout is? It's freaking apricots. You go, take, yeah. you go eat six seasonal apricots in a day easily. I could eat 10. They're yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And they're candy. good for you. Yeah. Dude, yeah. I mean, I agree with you 100%. Fruit is easy. Like my go-to is banana because it has a peel and it's easy to travel with. But easily transport. Um, any, any fruit, guys, like any fruit is a fantastic source of, source of carbohydrate. It's rich in micronutrients. And something you touched on that's really... Uh, important is the phytonutrient component, right? So these are compounds in fruits and vegetables that aren't classified as vitamins because they're not vital. Yeah. And in other words, like we don't need them to survive. Oh my God. But I just, I just realized that they share that route. I've been doing this so, 10 years, folks. And Vita must be. So vitamin comes vital amine, like oh, an amino okay. acid. And when, when vitamins were first discovered, some they, they, they thought some of them were, had like amine containing sure. groups. I didn't and know that though. Yeah, that's where the Never word Never even comes thought from. about that before. You learn yeah, something yeah, yeah, every yeah, day, yeah. folks. But a lot of these phytonutrients, dude, they can be really beneficial for your health and they can have like potent anti-inflammatory properties, which is arguably really good for your health as well. And what you were talking about, like plant compounds being bad for you or whatever, like what Paul Saladino is like one of the biggest proponents of this, right? Like defense uh, chemicals. Uh, yes. Ah. So, so guys, I want to talk about this for a second, even though it's not about hypertrophy, it's defense chemicals, right? Like uh, don't eat spinach because of whatever, or phytates or this or that. Guys, these compounds that are defense chemicals that are supposedly killing you are actually extremely beneficial for your health, right? So people talk about how they cause inflammation and inflammation is bad for disease. Everybody roots it, like links it to inflammation, right? And what people don't understand about inflammation is that there's a huge difference between acute and chronic inflammation. Okay. So chronic inflammation is long-term inflammation, right? And it's usually low grade. So it's a slight increase in these inflammatory molecules and inflammation does not mean bloating. So if you're thinking about being bloated long-term, I'm not talking about bloating. Okay. Inflammation by definition is, an, is a response by your immune system and your immune cells secrete different molecules that are inflammatory molecules, right? Um, so chronic inflammation is when you have a slight increase in these molecules and they are increased for a prolonged period of time, years, right? That contributes to disease development. Now there is acute inflammation, which is usually a higher spike in these molecules, but it resolves itself usually within 24 hours or so. There's a really good argument as to why acute inflammation is actually beneficial for you, right? If I told you, Danny, or to any of the listeners, if I gave you something that is going to make you tired, put you in pain, it's going to cause inflammation. It's going to cause elevated blood damage. pressure. It's going to elevate your blood pressure. Is that good or bad for you? Everybody would say it's bad. bad. Exercise does every single one of those things, right? Acutely. It's an acute stressor that your body can overcome, right? So the degree of, or the degree of the intensity of the stressor is really important. And anything that is an acute stressor actually makes you more resilient towards that stressor. It's so, so true. Yeah. Exercise is literally just stress to your body and your body adapts to that stress. The intensity is important because if you do too much 
exercise can kill you. Exercise can literally kill you, right? You can die of physical exhaustion. You get rhabdomyolysis. Um, Yeah, There's a lot of ways that going (laughs) above and beyond the hormetic effect of something can be bad. Exactly. Hormetic effect is the next thing I was going to talk about, right? It's this concept of hormesis where like your body adapts and actually becomes more resilient when exposed to a stressor that is to an intensity that elicits a response, but it's not so much that it causes damage, right? And that's the exact same thing that happens when you eat these plant compounds, these defense chemicals, right? At the doses that we're consuming them, they actually make us more resilient, improve our immune function, improve our anti-inflammatory capacities, and is overall very, very healthy for you. So whenever it tells you like, and whenever anybody tells you like, this food is trying to kill you, like food does not kill you. (laughs) Yeah. And then remember guys, all of these people were not going anywhere near fruit three years ago, and now, now, now it's like, well, uh, obviously the smart thing to do is eat fruit. And and I, I'm calling my shot now. In one to two years, there's going to be a short list of grains and vegetables that are okay too. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. carnivore diet will slowly morph into an omnivorous diet. And then before you know it, it'll just be the paleo diet. And it'll be like, okay, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. here we go. You're just doing paleo. Because like these, it's so wildly impractical to imagine a a life without fruits or vegetables and only eating meat, but those messages will travel faster and, and more rapidly than something less sensational. Like, Hey, you know, just, eat a balance of all this stuff. So it's even How do we make this about, stuff more sensational, bro. How do we make this more sensational? <laughs> you know, it's, it's an interesting point. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot and I think it comes through simplicity. I really yeah. think it comes through simplicity. I was listening to Morgan Housel's podcast, Morgan Housel's, uh, he wrote the book, the psychology of money. He wrote for the Motley fool, which is a, a, a pretty popular uh, economic website. And, and he was saying that essentially like all investment strategies work pretty well. The only difference is that people have different timelines. And so like, whether it's real estate, whether it's investing in stocks, whether it's saving, like, you know, short of some of the more sensationalized and idiotic approaches, as long as you're doing something that's going to work on your timeline, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be pretty fine. And, and nutrition and training are kind of the same. It just sucks. Yeah. And it's like a lot of what gets the most attention is stuff that's like promising to work on the shortest timeline. Um, and so that draws in people who want it fast. But if if we can just hammer the shit out of the basics and make it so simple and just repeat it forever, like I, I think there's hope. But I don't know. I, I The first person who figures out how to sensationalize like eat a balanced plate and lift five days a week. It's going to take 10 years, but you're going to be jacked and not die as soon. Like there's a lot of money for that motherfucker. Yeah. Well, you know what I think the issue is, it's, it's, it's information that people already know, right? That's the worst part. They don't, they don't want to be told they already have the answer. Yeah. So when they see something that's new, that's really sensational. So any new ridiculous claim, you know, it's funny that you use the analogy of investing. Like, do you know, a good amount or some information like on the stock market and investing in stocks and stuff like that? I, I would say I do. I've been investing since I was 18. I come from okay. broke I come from broke parents and I'm determined to not repeat that mistake. So I'm, yeah. I'm a little bit of a financial uh nerd. Yeah. Okay. So so I'm not, but I know the basics. Okay. So when I started investing my money, like I I get really sucked into things and I start learning a bunch of stuff, right? And so I learned the basics, like, hey, for long term, just invest in S&P 500, put yep. a certain amount of money away every month. 
And I was like, all right, this is pretty basic and simple. That's like the basics of nutrition, right? And then I started following like more people and then I started getting content on like day traders and stuff oh, like that. Oh my and God. They're, they're like, they're like analyzing the freaking candles and stuff. Like, I don't even know what that stuff is, but they're like, yes. when you see this, when you see this pattern, I'm like buy it. And I'm like, oh shit, should I be focusing <laughs> on this stuff? And I'm like, it's you're such just getting a- into the weeds of it for no reason, you know? And then you start realizing there's different candle patterns, whether you're looking at like hourly uh, t- changes or like, a minute by minute changes, you know, it's just, it's the same type of stuff, man. People it get is. into of it. Yeah. There, well, it's because there's a common psychological thoroughfare between the two. Yeah. It's just this idea that it can't be that simple. And it's like, dude, literally all of the fucking richest people on earth and are telling you to buy the S and P 500 and <laughs> every jacked person on earth who has a, at least some semblance of training and nutrition is telling you to eat a good amount of you know, both plant and animal products, whatever's practical for you to get a balanced diet and to do some kind of exercise. And people just, they're like, yeah, but that's not going to happen fast enough. It's not on the time frame I want. So yeah. instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy Jizz coin and it's going to the moon <laughs> and I'm going to repeat these same get rich quick schemes until I'm yeah. perpetually broke. And it's like get rich quick and get fit quick are the same thing. They will, you'll just end up looking for the next scheme. Meanwhile, the people who are patient will slowly get jacked and slowly get rich and you'll be frustrated. Yeah. It's very similar to like gambling too, right? Oh my it's gosh. Like, absolutely. Well, maybe the next round, like um, it's, it's like maybe the next diet, maybe the next program, maybe the, and guys, if you're listening to this and you're still thinking like, oh, well maybe this next thing, listen, this is the harsh truth. Nothing works except what I'm talking about. Like except what we're talking about. Nothing else works. Like nothing else works except what we're talking about. Unless you're like maybe taking some performance enhancing drugs. And even then you still have to do what we're talking about. It's like what you think works is just this repackaged as something different. Like I I see that a lot. Like, Oh my gosh, you should definitely try carb backloading. I remember when that was a big thing. It's like, okay, so eating enough carbs is going to work great. You just got to eat them at night. It's like, it's just eating more carbs later, but it's still eating the right amount. It's like, you can spin it however you want. There is there. Okay. There are some things that are new and emerging though that could be beneficial. And you're somebody who'd be a great person to talk to about this because you're scientifically literate. And this would be a great way to circle the wagons as we close out. But are there any things in the literature or that you're seeing in the research right now? We mentioned stretch uh, as an influence for hypertrophy. That's really big. But are there things that you find encouraging or exciting or potentially emerging around the science of muscle growth and body composition that you think are cool? Sure, man. So I guess from the hypertrophy stuff, there really is like more and more evidence, uh, like showing the importance of long muscle lengths. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's when we were talking about like range of motion, the reason why range of motion is important is because it exposes you to, to long muscle lengths. But if we want to talk about short range of motion, you can do short range of motion in the shortened position or in the lengthened position. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's actually cool literature looking now at like doing partial ranges of motion, particularly in the length of position and showing really good hypertrophic outcomes, Mm. right? So that would be like, let's say you're doing a dumbbell chest press. For those of you guys that are just listening, that would be doing the dumbbell chest press, like from your chest, only halfway up, right? Most people do the opposite. Most people go from all the way up to like halfway down and then back up. So it's doing the hardest portion of the, of the movement, right? And I don't necessarily know from a practical standpoint, why would you 
purposefully choose to limit the range of motion if you're exposing yourself to lengthened portion. But let's say, I don't know, like people feel pain in particular ranges of motion, but you can do that lengthened position from a hypertrophy perspective. That's what really, really matters. Right. And then if we're going to talk about other techniques, like blood flow restriction is really helpful. Yep. Right. So blood I flow like restriction. I like that a little bit. Unfortunately, you can only really do it really well for your arms and your legs because you have to tighten something around your extremity to limit the the amount of blood that's flowing into the extremity. Yeah, it only really works for joints that like flex and extend. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, But essentially, you could get a great workout for your arms or for your legs with like a quarter of the weight, right? And one of the theories as to why they think it might be, and actually the hypertrophic stimulus is like pretty much the same even if you're using like way more weight without it. And it's like when you're limiting blood flow, you're limiting oxygen delivery and you're limiting nutrient delivery to the muscle. There's perhaps a larger buildup of metabolites as well. So when you're doing an exercise, when you feel like a crazy burning sensation, that's usually a buildup of metabolites, a drop in pH, a buildup of lactate, right? So when your blood is flowing, it's actually helping clear those things from your muscle actively. And when you're limiting blood flow, perhaps those metabolites build up more rapidly because you're not clearing them up because there's not much blood flowing. And that buildup of metabolite is one of the proposed mechanisms by which we can stimulate muscle growth. Yeah. Right. It's the one to me that's the most interesting. Like I understand you have mechanical tension and muscle damage, but for people who are, you know, either limited in how they can train or they're looking for a way to build muscle that doesn't require a ton of load, the ability to introduce like mechanic or a, a metabolic stress yeah. is is interesting. I think about that a lot because I, I have a sauna and I'm huge on like going in the sauna and so much of the benefit that we get from the sauna is the metabolic output and the unique metabolic changes that they quite literally change your vascular health. Like you get a metabolic and it's like, there's, there's so many cool things that we can do without calling ourselves biohackers. Like you're kind of hacking your biology with some BFR in a way. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Well, well, like sauna is very similar type of stimulus as a cardiovascular exercise, right? Because your, your skin temperature rises so much that your vascular system has to adapt to cool your skin off. Right. Yep. So you get better vasodilation, better blood flow, and you get very similar adaptations as doing cardio-based exercise. Great for um, the cardio haters out there, by yeah, the way. Dude, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore cardio hater. Don't buy a $3,000 treadmill when you can buy a $6,000 sauna. <laughs> dude, I just walk and it's not because I don't, it's not that I hate cardio. I just like, get it's, in my mind. It's hard, much. dude. You're six foot five. It's like, you're never going to be a great runner. I doubt well, it. Dude, I'm, I'm, I think I'm definitely a little bit OCD and I just like start like counting my steps and stuff like oh, that. Shit. Okay. Blows my mind, dude. I used to swim competitively back in middle school and high school. And if I had to swim like a thousand yards, for example, each lap is 25 yards. And the whole time in my head, I'm swimming, I'm thinking 25, 25, 25. And then I would come back 50, 50, 50, 50. 50. It just drives me nuts. So I can't do long distance stuff, bro. I'm actually a fast runner. I can do sprints and stuff like that. I used to love playing basketball, but I cannot do uh, long endurance cardio. If if there was a perfect world, I would get like 100% of my cardio in from walking a dog, playing flag football and playing like pickup basketball or spike ball. I think that's something a lot of people lose touch with on their fitness journey is just the importance of playing and disorganized movement. Like so many injuries. I don't think there's truly such a thing as injury prevention, but so many injuries and so much of the loss of mobility, I think, that we see across the lifespan can be attributed to just not enough disorganized movement. So like 
play with your kids, get barefoot, make up silly games, go play some, go shoot some hoops, go throw the football around, like get your cardio in any way you can. Yeah. You don't have to walk or run or sprint or whatever. You can find a way to make it fun. Yeah, dude. And you know, this brings up another interesting topic since we were talking about like other variables that could potentially benefit hypertrophy. And again, we're getting into like niche things here, right? Where it's totally. Like, I mean, that's what yeah. people want. They we, we've walked them through a nice continuum. We're in our upper graduate coursework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, cardio can be potentially beneficial for potentiating gains, right? And you might be thinking, like, how is that? Like, I've heard cardio kills your gains. It's like you don't want to do a ton of cardio right before you lift because it's just fatiguing. It's tiring. So you don't have a much as much energy for lifting. It's that simple, right? It's not that cardio has some magical benefits where it kills your gains. But if you do, if you improve your cardiovascular function, you could potentially improve your, your ability to build muscle because you improve your work capacity, yep. right? One of the biggest issues, like if we talk about rest periods and stuff like that, you want to rest sufficiently to be able to push hard on every set. But if you're doing a set of like six reps on a squat and you're out of breath for like six or seven minutes, like, man, that's not good, right? To yeah. get enough work in for that workout, you might be at the gym for two, two and a half hours. Yep. Whereas if you're in better cardiovascular fitness, each set that you do might still be equally locally fatiguing on the muscle, but it's not going to be as cardiovascular fatiguing. Yeah. So you might feel fresher through your workout. You might be able to push the intensity a little bit harder. You're not going to be breathing as heavy. You're going to recover quicker between sets, all of which will improve the quality of your workout, which will improve your ability to build muscle long-term. So totally. I think having a, a good baseline of like cardiovascular fitness is really important. And for that, you don't have to be doing crazy amounts of cardio either. No, you don't. I, I mean, the, the thing that really made it click for me with regards to, you know, the benefit of cardio for resistance output is like when you train your cardiovascular fitness, you're to a certain degree training the mitochondria in your cell to yeah. essentially better produce energy via this aerobic pathway. And that becomes yeah. increasingly more challenging, the harder your cardio gets. And the, the more it turns from like a walk into a sprint, the, the harder it is for these mitochondria to, to contribute a lot of ATP. You start using things like stored sugar, you start, but it, that's not the point. The point is when you do cardio, yes, you train your vessels. Yes, you train your heart, but you also train these little tiny things in your cell to get better at pumping out the currency that you need for training. So you'll yeah. recover better set to set. You'll have better output. You'll probably be more vascular, which anybody who wants to be jacked is yeah. probably down for. And more importantly than anything, guys, like you, you don't want to gain all this muscle only to be out of breath when you like jog up the stairs. It's like cardiovascular, like the, the majority of the people listening are probably male. And the majority of the males in your life will die from a cardiovascular event. And that's not going to change. Like yeah. more men die from a cardiovascular event than anything else. So like just do the damn cardio, even if it's like the basic, like 90 minutes a week of walking, yeah. like you, you will be so much healthier and happier for it. Anything else you'd like to add here before we close out my friend? No, man, that's pretty much everything. I think we've covered a ton of really interesting topics. And maybe, I think maybe we could touch maybe for a couple minutes on supplementation. I think you're right. Yeah, it's hard to get it's hard to uh get fully engrossed in wanting to get jacked without getting bombarded with thousands of supplement ads and yeah, 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 and yeah. different marketing gimmicks. So what are the let's say the what are what are the big 3 for yeah, muscle sure. growth? And I'm not even going to include protein because I, I think protein so. is I think it's food. Fair. Like, it's food. Yeah, and and like there's if if you're getting adequate protein, there's nothing additional that you get from protein powder, right? Like protein powder just helps you meet your protein needs. But let's say you're getting your protein needs in 
other things that are beneficial. And you guys have probably heard this a million times, creatine number one by far. Creatine mm-hmm. number one by far. Not just even for building muscle, just for like even general health, dude. Talking about new emerging areas of research, like there's really good uh, emerging evidence showing benefits of of creatine for cardiovascular health, helping with uh, vascular regulation in particular. Yeah, brain health, um, blood sugar regulation. Function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, wild. It is. It is. It is kind of wild. Like I usually tell people, like when something sounds too good, it's probably too good. But like creatine sounds too good. <laughs> <laughs> but for real though, like it does have all these benefits. Like you should definitely be taking creatine five grams a day. Maybe larger people, I can, I would argue that there's uh, a potential reason to, to have a little bit more. You know, I actually have about seven to eight grams per day because I weigh about 225 not pounds. Natty. Right? So, not natty. Not yeah. natty anymore, guys. <laughs> Super not natty. Once you, once you cross that five gram threshold, it's. You can take up to a thousand migs of test a week, but if you take six grams of creatine, you're not mad anymore. Yeah. And the thousand migs of test is just TRT, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. That's a, that's something for another time. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Maybe we could do another future episode. Just talking about supplementation. I love this stuff. Yeah. You're um, more than welcome back anytime. Thanks, man. Well, aside from creatine, if we're going to talk about a pre-workout, right? Uh, Let's just talk about like, cause we'll talk about pre-workout as one supplement. Yeah. But yeah, what, what should you look for in your pre-workout? I love definitely that. Caffeine, right? Like definitely caffeine. If you want a caffeine-free pre-workout, sure. But like caffeine is like half the benefit. Yeah. Seriously. That's what's giving you that ability to fight through the fatigue yeah. and to get a couple extra reps. And even if you feel like you're somebody who has like a high tolerance to caffeine or whatever, it's not even just like I guess it is the way it makes you feel, but it's not just like how you feel super energized in the morning if you have coffee on like an empty stomach, right? Because you and I can probably agree to this. Like if you've had breakfast and lunch and like you've been about your day, if you have some caffeine, it doesn't have a crazy effect on your energy levels, but it does it does uh, decrease perceived exertion. Mm-hmm. So it makes things feel a little bit easier, which can arguably help you push a little bit harder, right? But you definitely want caffeine, um, probably two to, 100, two to 300 milligrams in a serving is, is good bigger person, maybe three to 400 milligrams. Right. Uh, I think the recommended dose is like, it's something absurd. Four to six six milligrams per kilo. No, no, no. It's, it comes out to me being a hundred kilograms being 600 milligrams caffeine, which is crazy high. Yes. I I've done the math myself. And been like, yeah, so it's four to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight, but that is really high, right? Like the upper end of that is really high. Now you got to think about like these studies are trying to like, just see optimization and performance. Right. And like these higher doses, doses of caffeine do have uh, improvements in performance. Right. But also these studies are not really long-term. So like, do you have uh, an adaptation to it? Is it perhaps like not a good idea long-term who knows? You'll find out really quickly how much caffeine you can tolerate. Yeah. And two to 300 milligrams, I think is a pretty effective dose for most people. Just like if you're going to have it at night, maybe go for a caffeine free pre-workout. Like ideally you're not having this five or six hours before going to sleep. Yeah, definitely Um, not. And then if we're going to talk about additional things to look in there, look for in there, definitely citrulline malate. Like that. Uh, So people talk about nitric oxide a lot, right? And there are nitric oxide supplements. There sure Um, are. L-citrulline is a precursor to nitric oxide. Actually, L-citrulline is converted to L-arginine and then L-arginine is converted to nitric oxide. You'll see supplements with L-arginine in it. Don't buy that because the absorption of L-arginine is minimal. So even though you're getting it, you're actually not absorbing as much of it in your GI. 
Yeah. If you consume L-citrulline, it has a much higher absorption rate and it's almost all converted to L-arginine. And then all of that is converted to nitric oxide. What that does is help your blood vessels dilate. So you have more blood flow. It improves oxygen delivery, nutrient delivery, and it improves exercise performance, right? And you ideally want to be getting at least six to eight grams of citrulline malate um, in a serving of free workout. And then you want to also look for beta alanine. Now, beta alanine is a little bit, uh, context specific because it really benefits exercise of high intensity like lifting that is in the duration of about 30 to 60 seconds so if you're training or maybe even like two or three minutes of high intensity output right so if you're training like a bodybuilder with high volume perhaps using supersets and stuff like that high volume sets high rep sets beta alanine is going to be helpful if you're training for maximal strength and doing three reps on a deadlift like beta alanine is not going to help much because beta alanine what it does is help buffer your blood pH. So we were talking about earlier about metabolite buildup and lowering pH. So you have a buildup of hydrogen in your muscle, which is a lowering of your pH. So it becomes the environment becomes more acidic. Okay. And so that lowering of the pH is one of the mechanisms by which you hit momentary muscular failure. So like you're not able to get another rep, right? There's a bunch of variables that contribute to that. pH is one of those. And beta alanine helps essentially helps buffer your blood pH. By being converted to something called carnosine, you don't need to know the specifics, but it helps with that in particular. So exercises that induce a lowering in pH would benefit from supplementing with beta alanine. And those are going to be high intensity exercises, probably in like that 30 to 45 second range to up to like two minutes, right? So again, if you're doing 15 rep sets, maybe if you're training with a slow tempo, pauses, supersets, all of that stuff, high intensity training will benefit from beta alanine. Um, and not saying that strength Specific training is not high intensity because it is, but it's a very different uh, type of training, right? That type of training would probably benefit a lot more from stimulants like caffeine. Yep, 100%. Uh, whereas like these more, exactly. Yeah, 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 right. Uh, ammonia, like people do that stuff before. Love that. Um, dude, have you ever sniffed smelling salts? Bro, I had a high school coach when I first started lifting weights who would make oh, everybody get into the squat rack and then he would go into the like bo oh, no, boiler dude. room of the gym and crack out the pool pool cleaning ammonia, pop the lid off oh, and hold no, the bucket dude. and stick it in your face. And then your dude. set began. He'd go to the next rack, stick it in your face. Dude. And then your set began. I don't know how many brain cells I have left at this point, but dude. that was like, that guy not in jail, bro. I don't know. Like the amount of cardiovascular <laughs> exercise he made us do like, and I grew up in a very, very hot part of California where it'd be like, I don't think we're allowed to practice today. It's like illegal. And he yeah, just, he would just slap the temperature gauge until it went all the way down to zero. Be like, oh, looks like we're running today. <laughs> like, dude, that's wild, man. High school strength and conditioning coaches, if they don't the kill worst. you, they will turn you into a absolute mental savage, but they will probably kill you. And they, are the, savage, worst. For sure. they are the worst. Dude, I wrestled in high school and that shit was horrible, man. Just horrifying. <laughs> high school sports exist to teach you how to deal with shitty bosses in the future. Dude, I I wrestled and there was a really good kid in like the 181 pound weight class, which is where I should have wrestled naturally. But if I wanted to wrestle, I had to get down to 160, which is a big cut. And Oof. so the coach was like, like literally like three days before me, he's like, just don't eat. Oh, dog, I would go home and tell my mom I can't have dinner. And she's like, you're crazy. What do you mean? I'm Hispanic. Yeah. She's like, no, you're eating. And so that would cause issues at home. And then going to the meat. Keep in mind, I grew up in Miami. It's like really hot, right? Yeah, so we too. would go in a school bus, windows down, so no AC, 
you're sweating your ass off. You would put on a garbage bag yep. so you would sweat more and then you would chew gum and spit out your saliva and not drink any water to dehydrate yourself. Absolutely horrible, man. It's so dangerous. It's crazy. People, kids, uh, kids die every year from wrestling so weight, yeah. weight tactics. Okay. Yeah. What a beautiful note to wrap, <laughs> to wrap it up on. No, but honestly, man, that was very insightful, very thoughtful. A lot, Thanks, man. a lot like your content. I want everybody who's listening to follow you because I learn a lot from you. So where can they do it? Yeah. So I post content on Instagram and YouTube pretty much daily. You guys can find me at Dr. Joey Munoz. That's D-R dot J-O-E-Y M as in mother U-N-O-Z. You'll probably link it down in the description. Sure will. And then... um I coach as well. So if you guys perhaps want to work with me or are interested in working with me, you can shoot me an email at joseph at biolane.com. That's B-I-O-L-A-Y-N-E. And that type, that information's on my Instagram handle as well. And then my podcast, which I just recently started about two months ago, which is where I'm doing long form content like this and interviewing people as well is the Dr. Joey Munoz show. And that's on every like major uh, podcasting app. That's that's me and that's what I do, man. Thank you so much for having me on, bro. It's been uh, awesome connecting with you and actually getting to to talk with you with more than like three word messages on Instagram. Absolutely, <laughs> man. I'm I'm gonna have you on in the future. I want to expand on this, and uh, I'm so so happy that you gave me your time today, and I'm very grateful. Thanks a bunch. Thank you.